So recently, some, some friends of mine and I had a very serious, mature, insightful disagreement about peanut butter. And we went ahead and shelved the whole crunchy versus smooth because I know that only crazy people prefer crunchy peanut butter. And we went straight to the smooth peanut butter type of discussion. And the, the discussion was which brand of creamy peanut butter is the superior brand? And we thought about cost, we thought about texture, we thought about all of, the, all of the things that you have to evaluate when considering peanut butter. And the only fair way to do it, we felt in a non-biased way, was to each at our homes individually take the peanut butter brands, the assortments, blindfold ourselves, and then allow our wives to feed us the different peanut butters in which we would judge the better one. Right, So it was this blind taste test where we were able to experience the contrast of the different peanut butters. Well, that's exactly what James is doing here. He's, he's not blindfolding us, but what he's doing is he's creating contrast. Is In the next few sections of James, he's comparing and contrasting God's way and the world's way. Specifically in our passage this morning, he's looking at worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. He's putting them side by side and he's giving us a spoonful of each so that we might see firsthand which is better. This is not uncommon to all of scripture. What we see as he does this is that God's way is different than the world's way. That God's economy is different than the world's economy. Right? We see this really all throughout the Bible. We see this in Matthew 19. Jesus says, what, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. God does this all over the places. He takes what we know, and he turns it upside down. Right? Matthew 16, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it. If you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you just see the disciples constantly scratching their heads trying to figure Jesus out, right? Like, what do you mean he has to be born again? What do you mean bread of life? We don't have any food here. What are you, what are you talking about resurrection or a, a, a battle of peace? And they're constantly going, what's, what's happening here? Because God's way is just different from the world's. That's so why 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Most succinctly, Isaiah 55.8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And so James is just illustrating that here with this idea of wisdom, that God's idea of biblical wisdom is in stark contradiction to the world's idea of biblical wisdom. He goes on through the next few passages, if you, if you want to read this afternoon. He does the exact same thing with worldly friendship and godly friendship, worldly speech and godly speech. And today he's doing that with wisdom. But before we jump back into the passage, I think it might be helpful to make sure we're all on the same page here with this word wisdom. What is this word wisdom? What does that mean? There, there's a lot of really good definitions. You might have some definitions that that are correct and accurate. One that I find most helpful here is a, a definition given by John Piper, where he says, wisdom is general knowledge of facts or reality combined with situational discernment and the necessary resolve to act. 
So this means in order to be wise, you don't have to know everything. You just have to take what you do know and discern the situation and then act in the most wise way based on what you know in that particular situation. Uh, another, another word I would use for that general knowledge of facts or reality is perspective, right? It's truth. What do you know to be true? What is your perspective on the world? J.I. Packer explains wisdom this way. He says it's like learning to drive a car. If you're going to drive well, you must not fret over the highway engineer's reasoning for an S-curve the philosophy that produced the red, green, and yellow traffic lights, or why the lady in front of you is accelerating when her foot should be on the brake. You simply try to see and do the right thing in the actual situation that presents itself. So this is the effect of divine wisdom, is to enable us to be able to do just that in the situations of life, to take what we know, to assess the situation, and then to have the, the fortitude to act in the appropriate way, right? I, I might know at a stop sign that I have the right-of-way, but if they're not stopping, I also know that my right-of-way doesn't mean a whole lot, because if I don't let them go first, I'm going to get hit by a car. Right? And so wisdom is not just intellectual knowledge, but it's taking what we know, taking our perspective about the world, and having the ability to apply it to certain situations and act in such a way. That's, that's exactly what wisdom we're talking about here. Now, in my life, and I would imagine in your life, I'm beginning to find more and more decisions that require wisdom. More and more decisions that are not so, so black and white. They're not necessarily right or wrong, but it's what's the wise thing to do here, right? It's, it's good, better, or best. Issues regarding time, money, relationships, conversations, rhythms of life, when to rest, when to hit the gas, when to hit the brake, right? Are, are you trying to decide, well, should we keep this house or should we move into a different house, right? That, that's not a sin thing. That's just a, what's the wisest choice, whether or not you take that job or whether you stay put at your current job, right? Where, were your, where will your kids go to school? Oh, we got all these choices, what do we do? Should you initiate that difficult conversation or, or, or kind of give it some space? Should you keep dating, get engaged, or break up? Which college do I attend? Right? There's a few issues that we face regularly that require wisdom. Decisions that can quickly turn into disaster if we live according to worldly wisdom rather than godly wisdom. And so the words of James should be sweet to us today. And so let's jump into James 3, 13. The passage begins really with a rhetorical question. Who is wise and understanding among you, is what James says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Kent Hughes gives us a helpful context here. He says that James is addressing the ambitious would-be teachers who had been devastating the church with their incendiary tongues, which we saw last week, were claiming to be superior in their wisdom and understanding. They imagined those who disagreed to be mentally inferior. Right? And the language that James uses here, it's very similar to what we saw in chapter 1, verse 26, right? where James says, if any of you thinks he is religious, step up. Let's see. Right? If you think you're religious, step up and let's, let's see what's going on here. It's the same language he's using here. If any of you think you're wise, step right up. 
Let's see. Let's put it to the test. And there's a beautiful simplicity behind this approach, right? Now, now I'm not sure I would have wanted to be in the church when James came and said, hey, you think you're wise? Come on up, buddy. You think you're religious? Come on stage. But I'm grateful for the simplicity here that James is communicating. If you're a follower of Jesus, your life, your behaviors will reflect that. If you are truly full of godly wisdom, your relationships and your conversations will be marked with these attributes that he gives us. And he follows up this question. So who is wise and understanding among you? He follows this and says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Right? So he gives this rhetorical question and then he says, if you think you're wise, show me by your good conduct that is marked by meekness. This is where James immediately gives us a shocking word to illustrate contrast between God's wisdom and worldly wisdom. The word is meekness. That is not a word that would have been associated with wisdom. In fact, this this domineering, loud, haughty, prideful group of people is immediately put on notice when James uses this word meekness. Right, you're, you're, you're voicing your opinion and you're big and you're loud and you're calling all the shots. And he says, if you're really wise, you should know that godly wisdom always displays meekness and humility. This would have been a penetrating rebuke, a very countercultural rebuke, right? Because again, in their context, meekness was synonymous with weakness. And so James not only says meekness is not weakness, but it's the moral character of wisdom. Meekness is the moral character of wisdom. As we have godly wisdom, it displays itself in an attitude of meekness. And so we have to ask the question, what is meekness, right? If meekness is the outworkings of godly wisdom, what does that word mean? If James is telling us that, we have to understand it. Now, we might be tempted to believe that meekness is this natural disposition that people may have of quietness, right? I'm sure someone comes to your mind and say, oh yeah, that's a meek person. And, and we typically think it's just this natural disposition of being quiet, of being subtle, of not being very outspoken. But it can't be that because meekness is something that God requires of all of his people, not just people with a certain temperament or disposition. We also know it can't be that because meekness is an outworking of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not something naturally just given to us at birth based on temperament or demeanor. So it's not a natural disposition. The most helpful way that I've seen this is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, meekness is not a matter or outward manner, but rather a manner of inward spirit. Meekness is a manner of inward spirit. He explains it and says, it is a true view of oneself. Remember that meekness is a true view of oneself. That means it's an attitude towards myself and an expression of that in my relationship to other people. So to be meek, in other words, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, means that you have finished with yourself altogether and you come to see you have no rights or owings. The meek person is not proud of himself. They do not glory in themselves. 
The meek person does not make demands for themselves. Think about how countercultural that is. In fact, as I studied this, I immediately had objections start stirring up in my heart, right? And you might have those as well. I thought, well, well what about abuse victims, right? Does, does this just mean that Christians are supposed to be doormats? That, that we don't think about our own rights, we don't think about what we deserve, we don't think of ourselves? Are we supposed to just let ourselves get walked on in the name of meekness? It's tough, and, and, and hear me say that I don't believe Scripture is advocating for any form of self-harm or allowance of harm in the name of meekness. In that regard, we have to apply biblical wisdom, right, to understand when meekness is appropriate. But we also need to recognize here that some of the objections that I think are stirring up in our hearts are because we're infected by culture to a degree, right? We're infected by worldly wisdom. And we've got to work that out. We've got to evaluate that. Because what James is saying is that biblical wisdom in meekness is and should be a stark contrast to worldly wisdom, right? What does the world say? Assert yourself, get yours, stand up for yourself, get even for yourself, mostly look out for yourself. You do you, right? That's what the world tells us. Detrimentally, sometimes just be yourself. You're enough. You deserve, right? It's dangerous counsel from friends, by the way. I've seen really, really bad situations in marriage because we had spouses with someone in their ear saying, oh no, you do you. How dare they? It's not biblical wisdom. That's worldly wisdom. Philippians 2, 3 through 7 gives us an idea of this contrast. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You don't see that a whole lot in our culture. It's biblical wisdom. I was always told that boys make decisions based on what's best for them, and men make decisions based on what's best for everyone else. That's meekness embodied here. It's this idea that we're called to look to others as more significant. This is exactly what was lacking in the church here in James and also in, in the church in Corinth when Paul rebukes them, right? The issue was that the Christians within the church were not looking to the needs of others, but mostly to their own needs and their own rights and what they deserved and what they felt they were owed. And so they started having these court cases and suing one another within the church. And it was creating division in the church. And not only was it division in the church, but it was tarnishing the name of the church to unbelievers. Look at this rebuke that Paul gives him in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. 
Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits with, lawsuits with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul's saying, listen, you're tarnishing the name of the church. You're tarnishing the name of the gospel. Why not just take it on the chin? Listen, I know that this is tough. I get it. It's countercultural, and, and, and truthfully, it, it doesn't really sit right with us. But it's biblical, right? I, I mean, this is what Scripture is telling us, is to count others as more significant than ourselves, to walk in humility. And I know it's, it's hard for me to not feel wronged and victimized and angry and be rude. Even when I pull away from the drive-thru and I open my chicken sandwich and it has pickles on it when it wasn't supposed to have pickles. And now I have pickles and my bottom bun is slopped in pickle juice, right? Like we just get so angry and how dare they treat me this way? I deserve better much less when there's a serious disagreement or we've been seriously wronged by somebody. How are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to overlook offenses? How are we supposed to walk in meekness and a willingness to count others more significant than ourselves? It's hard. Proverbs 9.10 gives us the starting point here, right? So if we're saying biblical wisdom contrasted with worldly wisdom, comes from a place of meekness, humility, a proper view of oneself. Proverbs 9.10 tells us this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Okay, so let's just try and make this connection here. So biblical wisdom displays itself in meekness, which is a true view of oneself, and now we see that all of that begins with the fear of the Lord. Because when we see God for who he is, according to his word, holy, awesome, loving, sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, the creator, the ultimate authority, then we embrace a proper reverence for him, a proper fear and that leads us to a better understanding of ourselves. In other words, it's easy to think that we're God until we see God. And when we do, there's this natural sense that comes out of us of humility and gentleness, servanthood and meekness generated in our hearts when we look rightly at God and see ourselves in light of who he is. Biblical wisdom is self-confidence, is confidence in God, excuse me. Worldly wisdom is self-confidence. Biblical wisdom is thinking much of God and only finding our value in who God says that we are, where worldly wisdom is all our confidence and our value in who we are, despite what God says. Proverbs 26, 12 warns us, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. 
because he's unable to see himself properly. Ironically, wisdom begins when we realize we're really not that wise, right? When we look at who God is and then we look at ourselves and it creates this dependence on God. The problem James is addressing here is that there was a whole slew of people in the church that were convinced they had it all figured out. They weren't dependent on God and his direction and his wisdom, but they were quite sure of themselves and they were quite vocal about their opinions. None of us are that way, right? Because in a world where everyone feels that their opinion has to be stated, right? In a world where we always have to be tweeting and Instagramming and TikToking and captioning and blogging and vlogging and expressing what we think about everything in the world, right? Everybody's a Sunday quarterback, everybody's a backseat driver, and everybody could solve all the problems if they would just listen to us. We need a reality check sometimes. And that's what James is giving us, is wisdom is rooted in meekness, humility, a proper view of ourselves. I want to show you a couple places in Scripture that are helpful to find this. My favorite that I go to is Job 38 through 39. I go here when, when either I'm upset with the circumstances around me, right? Sometimes we all get that way. We think, God, we should have been pregnant by now. God, why did this illness happen? God, why did this thing with work happen? God, why did this house fall through? And we think, if only I could be in charge, things would be better, is, is what we think realistically, whether we say that or not, right? If only I could kind of have complete control, then I would make my life better. Or maybe sometimes when I'm just feeling myself, right? When I think too highly of myself. Job 38 through 39, and, and it's where I go to be reminded of who I am and who God is. Job's upset with God for the circumstances of his life. And so he questions God, right? He says, God, why did you do it this way? Why are you this way? And this is what God says. This is, this is just a portion of it, but listen. He says, who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Is what God says to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked shall be shaken out of it? Have you entered into the spring of the sea? Or walked into the recess of the deep? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Can you bind the chains of Pallades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of water may cover you? This goes on for 70 verses. Until finally in verse 4 of chapter 40, Job responds and says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer. See, when Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it means a moment like that. 
a moment when we realize, you know, I, I really don't have it all figured out. I'm really not as important as I think I am. I'm not as powerful as I think I am. I'm not as wise as I think I am. And we look at God and then we look at ourselves and in his glory, all we can do is fall down on our knees and let the pride and the demands of selfishness and the I deserve and my rights fall off of us because we're just overwhelmed with gratitude that the God of the universe would be mindful of us. Not only is he mindful of us, but that he would send his son to die for us. And all of those I deserves and you owe me and how dare they, they fall off of us. We're overwhelmed with God's love. Have you had a moment like this ever or, or recently where you were able to look at God and just get small? Say, well, we see the same thing in Isaiah chapter six. Look at the experience that Isaiah has. Isaiah 6 says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Lord of hosts. Have you been there lately? Have you allowed yourself time to consider the greatness of God in our own insignificance and yet the beautiful reality that we are significant in Christ? See, worldly wisdom, it tells us to project strength, to have it all figured out, to be the loudest, to be the most opinionated, to never back down from a fight, stand up for yourself, get your way, Always have the last tweet, always have the last word, always have the snottiest comment. But godly wisdom begins with meekness. It begins with humility. A correct view of who we are in light of the greatness of God. Have you felt that lately? Just overwhelmed by God's vastness, by his transcendence, in your lives and that though he is transcendent, he is also imminent and he wants to know you. We see this contrast continue in James 3, 14 through 18. It plays out like this. It says, if you'll, if you feel, if you'll look at your bulletin, you can look on the screens as well. Worldly wisdom is marked in red. You'll see that. Godly wisdom marked in blue, right? Try and make this easy. We see worldly wisdom comes from a place of selfish ambition it creates boasting, it creates dishonesty. And the fruit of worldly wisdom will always be disorder and vile practice. 
And it has to be, right? Think about it. If worldly wisdom is based on get yours and what you deserve and your power and your strength and your projections and your opinions, then how could worldly wisdom lead us to anything else other than selfish ambition, other than disorder, other than chaos and drama and sin and vile practices? If I'm always right and I've always got it all figured out and I'm the most important person in the room, of course I'm gonna be argumentative and opinionated and never back down and always get what I deserve and always have the last word. But if we see ourselves considering a holy God and knowing that I will be accountable to that God, then look what worldly wisdom, what, I'm sorry, biblical wisdom looks like. I begin to act with moral purity. I begin to desire peace more than just being right all the time. I begin to deal gently with people. It means I'm open to reason. It means I'm, I'm, I'm willing and able to actually hear a correction and say, you know what, you're right. That's actually better. It means I resist the urge to always just dig my heels in. It means I'm open to ideas that did not originate in my head. It means I'm not God, therefore I'm open to correction. And our lives will be marked by mercy. And where those things are, where godly wisdom is, scripture says there will be fruits of peace and good works. Right, the whole book of James is, is just constantly calling us back to look in the mirror. Right, if you think you're religious, come up here, look in the mirror. Can you guard your tongue? Let's look in the mirror. Let's follow your words, let's follow your actions. And here, James is saying, hey, let's, let's, let's trace back at our conversations. Let's trace back at how we treat people. Let's be honest about ourselves at this passage. Are our conversations and our social media posts and our judgments of people and our online interactions, are they full of mercy, grace, gentleness, peace, bearing good fruit? Or are we just running through this world beating our chests acting out of jealousy, selfish ambition, and leaving a wave of disorder behind us. What is your life marked with? Listen, I, I can't tell you whether or not to purchase a new house. I can't tell you whether or not you should take that job, or where to send your kids to school, whether or not to have that conversation or give it space. I don't know if you need to get engaged or, or break up or get married. I'm not sure where you should go to college. But I can tell you that the answer to all of those questions that require wisdom, it begins with the fear of the Lord. The answer to all the situations in life where we've got to figure things out and decide what do I do and do I, what do I say and how do I handle this and what conversations do I need to have, the, the things that are real gray for us, it begins with a healthy fear of God and a right understanding of who you are. The more I chew on this, there's two Proverbs that, that have been burning in my head that I'll, I'll leave you with. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. There's a, a way that seems right based on worldly wisdom that only leads to destruction. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 8 says this. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. See, there's this fleshly inclination within each of us to resort to worldly wisdom. Self-dependence, my opinions, my ideas, to think higher of ourselves than we should, to make demands, to yell and scream about our rights, to be the loudest, most opinionated one. And you can go that way and, and just know that it will always lead to dishonesty, vile practices, and disorder. But there is another wisdom, a godly wisdom, leads to peace and a harvest of righteousness. And it will be a refreshment to your bones. Man, I would encourage you to get small today. Spend some time just considering the vastness of our God so that meekness would be an overflow of godly wisdom. And trust that what James said is true in James 1, 5. Just a few chapters earlier, he said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach.